Nobody likes authority over them. Uh, it's resisted. And sadly, because so many of those in authority have abused those authorities, it's hard to comprehend a positive authority. But we're going to look at what the Scripture has to say in these regards. Um, I'm, I'm impressed with verse 22, chapter 11, verse 22, something that was addressed last week in the, in the message, where we read, have faith in God. I love that. Have faith in God. But if you think about it, that's countercultural as well, because our, count, our culture says, have faith in yourself. So this is saying something entirely different. Have faith in God. And you know what? That's not just a good idea. That's a command. That's an imperative in this passage. It, we are told this must happen. You must have faith in God. That's a command. So the question is, how? How would you have faith in God? Hang on to that. In chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, leading up to our passage, uh, Jesus simply spoke a word and a fig tree withered away. Remember that? Pastor Jordan addressed that last week. And then Jesus talks about moving mountains when we pray. Moving mountains. You have faith in God that moves mountains? God can do that. Have this note, have this comprehension, have this cultural awareness of that day, will you? With this understanding. Not far from Jerusalem, just southeast, maybe five, six miles, is a place that's archaeologically been recovered in some respects. It's called the Herodium. There's a picture of that I want to show you. It's, it looks like a volcano almost. Uh, but this, this, this was set up on top of a hill, by, uh, on top of a mountain, by a man named Herod the Great. He was quite the construction genius. He was an engineer of engineers. He did some amazing things throughout that region. But this is one of his last works. He wanted there to be a monument to himself that everyone could see. So on top of this mountain, he wanted to build a fortress that was his palace. It was his party house. It was where he would be buried, and he would be remembered. And he wanted it to be something that everyone could see. In fact, if you'll notice in this uh, aerial photo, all along the, the western side from this, maybe a, a mile or two west of this, there's a ridge that goes all the way up and down that from Jerusalem all the way down to Hebron. And most of the population centers of Israel are along that ridge. And just east of that and a little bit south, in fact, up there where you see the sun shining, back up in there is where Jerusalem would be. Right? So it's within sight, not that far away. And he wanted to be seen and remembered. And so what he did was build this edifice on top of this mountain. But the problem was the mountain was not tall enough. So what he told his people to do, his slaves, he had authority. And what he told them was, I want you to remove the mountain that's right next to it and put it on top of my mountain. There were two mountains together there. In fact, if you look at this picture closely, just above what you see as the Herodium, this fortress, there's another knoll that's much shorter now. Originally, there was another mountain there. 
but he, he had the authority to tell these people, pick up the bucket, fill the bucket, take your shovels, dig a hole, pick up that bucket, carry it all the way to the top of my hill and put it there and keep on doing that until you remove that mountain and put it on top of my mountain. He exercised his authority. That was culturally understood when Jesus said he could remove mountains. In fact, he could remove this mountain and cast it into the sea. A picture is worth a thousand words when you understand what they were seeing when Jesus said these words. That's the context of our text as we're moving through the rest of chapter 11 into chapter 12. In verse 27, he's walking into the temple probably on Tuesday morning of the Holy Week. Luke says he was preaching there. And the, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they, they came to him and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gives you this authority to do these things? See, Jesus knows what's going on here. There's a little bit of cognitive dissonance. There's some passive aggression in their way they're asking these questions. They want to trap him. Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question. By the way, that's a great response to those that are upset. Just ask a question, a clarifying question. And he asked a question, and, and he said, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, then why did you not believe him? If we say from men, they feared the people. They didn't want to go there, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. I love this. They made their move, thinking, ah, we've got him in check on the chessboard. And they're thinking, ha ha, we won the game. But then Jesus makes his move, and it's checkmate. And they have to walk away because they don't have an answer. They had no answer for Jesus. We do not know, which I think was really a lie. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Do you notice how authority keeps showing up here in this passage? So when someone else is in this pulpit preaching on a Sunday, uh, on a Sunday morning, I'll normally ask, in one sentence, what are you going to preach on when you preach? You've heard that? Yep. In one sentence, what do you, because I, I, my thought is if you can't say it in one sentence, you're probably not ready to say the whole thing. So can you get an idea of what it is that you need to say in one sentence? So I'll ask that question. If it's a visiting speaker or Jonathan or Pastor Jordan or whoever, so in one sentence, tell me what you're going to say. By the way, you can ask me that normally on a Sunday morning, and if I can't answer it, I'm probably not ready to preach either, all right? And, and some of you do that. So in one sentence, Pastor, what are you going to say? Well, Pastor Jordan has taken that thought and turned it into a work of art because now what he does is he takes that sentence, have you noticed this, and that becomes his outline. Did you notice that? Last Sunday, he preached the humble king, point one, 
is not impressed with external show, point two, but desires dependent faith, point three, that expresses itself in expectant trust and forgiveness. Wasn't that awesome? That was excellent. And that grasped the point of the passage spot on in one sentence. So, I thought today, I'm going to try to be like Jordan. And I want to do my outline the way Jordan would do that. I mean, we all want to be like Jordan, right? Be like Mike. Be like Jordan. So I'm going to tell you what I'm going to say. Then I'm going to say it. Then I'm going to remind you what I've just said. Sinners struggle with Christ's authority. Point one. Prompting rejection of him. You see that happen? Point two. I love the semicolon. I'm so glad for the semicolon because that can add to a sentence in so much way, in such way. That semicolon. However, God will do what God will do. Lord, will you take these few moments that we have to look into your word, to see you as you really are, to appreciate and respect and come in faith knowing how much you love us. You are the cornerstone. It's all built on you. Draw us near now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So sinners struggle with Christ's authority. That's, that's nothing new to you. You've seen that. And I think the number one issue most have with Christ isn't that, you know, that Jesus existed or that, that he lived a perfect life. He was a great example. We all like that, but we resist his authority. Why? Well, we're sinners, and we do what sinners do. What do sinners do? I want my way. I want what I want. Adam and Eve did the same thing, and they rejected somebody else saying, this is, I'm going to limit, I'm, I'm, you have to do my thing. We don't like that authority. We don't like anyone else telling us what to do. And that, in this reality, is the sin nature that we have. We don't like someone else telling us what we must do. We all resist that. That's part of our sin nature. Sinners struggle with Christ's authority. This word authority occurs throughout the Mark chapter 11, this, this several, several different times. In fact, I think the screen will come up with, with a, a, see how many times that word is there. And it, so it's, it's obvious that that's an important point of this whole thought process that's going on in the minds of these religious leaders and Jesus, understanding that Jesus said he was able to exercise this authority. This word authority is the word exousia, and it has the idea in that word, in that language, exousia, has the, this picture of right, he has the right, and the might. He can enforce what is his right. That's what authority can do, right and might. So much was made of Jesus' authority throughout his ministry. We read about it in Matthew 7 and Matthew 8 and Matthew 9. And also Matthew chapter 21, and again in chapter 28, we'll see that in a moment. Here in Mark, the very first chapters, you remember this in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, uh, is teaching, casting out demons, healing, and being able to forgive sins. Again, casting out demons, they were amazed at his authority. And here in chapter 11, they're asking him, by what authority do you do this? They recognized there was something different about Jesus 
and his exercise of authority. It wasn't for selfish means. Remember the Great Commission? Most of us remember go into all the world and preach, preach, making disciples, right? But did you ever notice what came right before that? Right before that. Matthew chapter 20, verse 18, we read, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Jesus was exercising his authority. So because of that, we go and we're baptizing, we're making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. Praise God for that promise. But it starts with his authority. This is the main issue before, before him. Christ is the authority. He has the right and he has the might. He is God. So keep that in mind. And then chapter 12, verse 1, starts with what word? And. That's just a little word, isn't it? And. A little conjunction. But that little word connects what we've just read regarding Jesus and his authority and what we're going to read here in the next few verses. It's a continuation of the thought. This story of the conflict between the vineyard owner and the workers goes back to this conversation Jesus had with these religious leaders when they were resisting his authority. And this is a very practical parable, and here's why. Everywhere these people looked, there were vineyards. It was, a, it was a land filled with, with grapes and honey, remember? It was a very familiar sight. And also their Old Testament scriptures, their scriptures spoke of this in Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5. We'll look at that here in a couple of weeks as we look at Isaiah 5 and chapter 6 together on our communion Sunday. Again, in Jeremiah, several places, Jeremiah chapter 2. It was a common observation in their culture around them. It was also in their scriptures, this matter of the vineyard. In the Old Testament, the vineyard was the nation of Israel. The landowner was God. The servants were the prophets. And the son was the word or the Messiah. More on that later in a few weeks. In Jeremiah, God's anger is directed at the vineyard because they have rotten grapes. They're, they're wild grapes. They're not, any, they're not doing what they were supposed to do. They weren't a savory taste. The fruit was worthless. When Jesus here in Mark chapter 12 is quoting this passage, get this, the judgment is not at the vineyard, it's the wicked vine dressers, the religious people of their day. The religious people of their day. The word of God had come from the prophets, and they killed the prophets. Now the owner sends his own son. This, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen, literally come under his authority and do what he tells you to do. Hearing is listening, coming under the authority and saying, I will. 
Listen to him. Yet they killed him. Number two, sinners struggle with Christ's authority, prompting rejection of him. This is a typical response. People reject Jesus. And this is the point of Mark chapter 1, chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. And they understood this parable. This was not a hidden meaning. Other parables, only those that were followers of Jesus understood the meaning. They got the point of this parable. So why were they rejecting Jesus? What was happening there? Something that was going on within them that was saying, we don't want him. What was that? Again, back to the sin nature. I don't want someone telling me what to do. And if possible, I want to be in control of the situation. That's our sin nature. Let me ask you, what's happening in your heart? Are you rejecting Christ as the authority, as your Lord? There's so many ways this develops within us. Sometimes we simply ignore him. Like that five-year-old child. When mom says, hey, come pick up your toys. And he just goes on doing what he was doing anyway without paying attention. We ignore, we ignore the voice from God, the authority that Jesus has. Sometimes we try to discredit him. We argue with him. You ever argue? We argue with him and attempt to say, because you're wrong, I don't have to follow your authority. And so many are trying to argue that Jesus really isn't who he really was. They discredit him. And then some will seek to remove him from the culture altogether. They will kill him. They will remove him. Certainly this vineyard illustration happened just as Jesus said it would happen. They left here and they went out and they were making plans to destroy him, to kill him. You know the rest of the story. As we continue through the rest of the book of Mark, we'll see that unfold. There's an interesting strategy here that Jesus Christ uses. The one who is the authority, who can command even the fig tree just to wither away, who could move mountains. This one who has authority, he uses a very interesting teaching tool in this passage. It was something very common to their culture as well. Uh, typically in their rabbinical teaching style, the tactic that the teacher would use would to be offer a story, the vineyard story, ask a question, and let them answer it on their own. Give the story, ask a question, and allow the audience to draw their own conclusions. Now let me draw you to what I believe is the key statement in this whole section, and it's in verse 9. And the question that Jesus asked is, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And they had to answer that in their own minds. Third point, sinners struggle with Christ's authority, prompting rejection of Him. However, 
God will do what God will do. What will the owner of the vineyard do? We read here that he will destroy those who reject the son. He will come and he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. He will come. Jesus is coming again. He's coming to rapture the church for that wedding feast in glory. But he's also coming to this earth to judge the world. There is a great white throne judgment. And Christian, we're forgiven of our sins. We'll look at that here in just a moment. But there is an accountability for our life as well, for our fruitfulness. But the reality is he will come and he will destroy them. That word destroy there is it's, it's from and then it's to loose. You're, 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 you're taken away out from where you thought you had it all put together. Sinners struggle with Christ's authority, prompting rejection of him. However, God will do what God will do. God will destroy those who reject his son. But the story doesn't stop there. Jesus' teaching doesn't stop there. He moves on to something very important now. And we need to see what else God says he will do. God will rescue, he will save those who trust his son. And here in verse 10, Jesus changes the metaphor to a building. So he's, he's used this story about the vineyard, but now all of a sudden he jumps to this thought about a cornerstone and this building, this metaphor of a building and the cornerstone. Jesus here is quoting a messianic psalm, Psalm 118. We won't reference that here just this moment. But the rejected stone is the rejected son in this parable. They're one and the same. The cornerstone is the one that was rejected, but because the cornerstone is promised, they have something to build on. What they have their hope in, their faith in, is not just their efforts, but something that God builds for them. And Jesus is the cornerstone. In their culture, they had huge, massive rocks that were cut into pieces to, to fit in perfect form, and all of it rested on one main rock, this cornerstone. All of our faith, all of our hope rests on Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone. In fact, Peter quoted this, what Jesus said here, quoting from the Old Testament in, in Psalm chapter 18. Peter is quoting this, and he, he says in Acts chapter 11, verse 12, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, by which we must be saved. This is what, this is what God will do. He will judge but he will rescue those who trust in his son. The stone the builders rejected has become 
the cornerstone. It's already done in God's plan. And in fact, we read in Psalm 118, this was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then we come to that passage, that verse that we just love to quote, this is the day the Lord hath made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. Do you realize that the, this day that the psalmist is referencing is the day that Jesus rescued when he rescued us from sin by his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection, and he's won the victory. This day of his rescue is the day we rejoice in. Sinners struggle with Christ's authority, prompting rejection of him. However, God will do what God will do. Here at Walnut Park, we have four affirmations that we come to repeatedly. Just about every Sunday, you're going to hear one of these along the way. You'll see them on, on the windows out front. You'll see them in our materials. You'll hear me reference them. As soon as I start quoting this, you'll go, oh, yeah, I've heard that before about every Sunday, these four affirmations. The Bible is truth. We can count on it. The second one is life is all about Christ, our Lord, and our God. And our response to the gospel changes everything. That's number three. And number four, God's love motivates us. <laughs> Affirmation number two, life is all about Christ, our authority, our Lord. He is our God. He has the right. He has the might. And we bow before him in humility. I'm saddened by the conclusion of this passage. These religious people who are asking him the question, by what authority do you say these things? They left him and went away. Sadly, they left him and went away with the mindset of destroying him. But they did not destroy the king of kings. You don't have to respond the same way these religious people did. You can come to Jesus in faith and respond in humility to his authority. When we read, have faith in God, this is what it looks like. This is what we do. Faith is acknowledging Jesus Christ is the Lord, and we call out, Lord. Whosoever shall call, Lord, shall be saved. So he invites you. You don't have to be destroyed in judgment because you've rejected the king, the cornerstone. You can respond in faith. There's salvation in no other. You come to him and you follow him and you make him your Lord. You say, Lord, I, you are my authority. Our sinful nature rejects that. We want to push it away. But because God is God, he gives you the opportunity. Because he loves you, he gives you the opportunity to say, but I come, Lord, I turn from my sinful, willful way, <clears throat> and I respond to you as my Lord. Help me to believe. Help me to follow you. So what is your response? Have faith in God. Demonstrated in your humble response to Christ as your authority.
Lord, this is the truth. Our flesh resists because we want our own way. And there are consequences for our rejection of you and your authority. You're coming again. And Lord, with a humble heart, may each one here and each one hearing this today say, yes, Lord, I do believe. I want to call on you as my Lord. I want to follow you as my Lord and Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name.